Hello and welcome to Becoming Educated. I'm Darren Leslie. I am so excited to bring you this week's conversation. But before we get into that, a quick message about our sponsor. This episode of Becoming Educated has been supported by Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that helps schools improve student grades and helps reduce teacher workloads. Teachers at over 150 schools, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and Art Schools, use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning, consolidation of classroom material and as a flipped learning tool. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote Becoming Educated for 10% off. That's uplearn.co.uk U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot uk This week I am joined by Ross McGill, founder of Teacher Toolkit, his alter ego, you might say. Ross is the best-selling author of Mark Plan Teach, Teacher Toolkit and Just Great Teaching and has also co-authored brilliant books, including The Revision Revolution. Recently, Ross released the Teacher Toolkit Guide to Memory, and it really is a fantastic addition to the Cogside discussion. Ross describes it as a beginner's guide to memory, but it's so much more than that, and we unpick some of the key themes in today's episode. In this episode, we discuss the following and so much more. Why memory is the number one thing to know about. Some basic parts of the human brain and why we should know about them. How memory is shaped in the brain. How we can use direct instruction and dual coding to deliver content clearly and efficiently. The different types of memory, including short-term memory and long-term memory. The connection between emotions and learning. This is a far-ranging conversation and Ross speaks with honesty and clarity when explaining complex concepts. I can't wait to dive into this conversation. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 92 of Becoming Educated. Hi Ross, thanks so much for coming back on to Becoming Educated. How are you today? I'm very good. Darren, it's nice to catch up with you. Uh, thanks for having me. No, certainly. Um, thanks so much for, for all the work you do. I, I absolutely love um, Teacher Toolkit and, and the blogs and the resources and that you provide. And I, I want you back on today to talk about your most recent book, The Teacher Toolkit Guide to Memory, which is, should be over my yeah, shoulder it on, is. on the screen. Very nice. Here. So, <laughs> Um, very much looking forward to to exploring that today. So, yeah, no, I'm uh, like really to... excited about the book. It's still, you know, it's only been out two or three weeks, so it's still very early. I I, I need to read it again myself, actually, because you know it's it's very different to proofreading it on a screen or uh, you know, and then having it in print and going through it again. So I've read it lots of times online, but I, I, in my summer, I'm going to physically hold it and go through it again. Nice. Yeah, definitely flick, flick through the book. No, it's, it's like your, your books are all beautifully presented and I love the kind of how you how you design them and so on. It's, it's really fantastic. So I'd like to dive into some of the ideas in the in the book today. Um, but what I'd like to do to start with, Ross, is ask you, can, when did you first get interested in finding out more about memory? Uh, I guess memory quite recently, but the interest in psychology goes back to when I was a teenager, I suppose. And then at university, my best friend, who later became my best man, tr- uh, did his degree in psychology, and I went and did my degree in DT and teaching. And just being around him all the time, it was always, you know, can you take part in that experiment and all sorts of things through his teacher, through, through our college time together. Um, so, yeah, very early on, I suppose, and then just always hanging out with him. I just used to start to see our behaviours, our decision-making, how people were affected. And then uh, 15 years of blogging and tweeting and seeing the phrase cognitive dissonance and how people disagree with each other and that moral outrage and the culture war stuff we see online, you can see how 
It's human nature. You can't agree with everyone. And it's how we respond or react and all those. So I've been, I've just increasingly grown fascinated with human behavior. And I suppose my blog, uh, you know, now we've all got it. But for 15 years, I was looking at teacher analytics, who was clicking on my website for many years. And I was starting to see behaviors in that way. So I guess the kind of mechanics of the classroom, I was looking at the psychological insights of what teachers needed. So I guess it's just become increasingly over time. And then, uh, you know, the blogging life and the Twitter life, you'll know it's very easy to get immersed in other people's ideas and the good things that come your way. So for 15 years, for me, just, you know, putting out an idea or a blog and, and you know, 15 years ago, I was far from research and forms uh, or had any rigor behind my ideas. So I used to always find myself down a rabbit hole or people saying, back up your, back up your ideas or claims. So that, encouraged me i was going to say forced it encouraged me to start to be a bit more rigorous with my thinking so yeah so it's been a quite a long time actually i suppose from memory probably you know since i've been doing teacher training full-time as a career probably five or six years because i guess what i've learned is i've got all my great ideas i love for mark plan teach which are secondary base and having to play around with them in different settings early year classrooms uh, people referral units seeing how some ideas work in some contexts and some don'ts it's made me understand right there's a new bit of nuance required here translation how do kids learn how do they grow uh, so that's just take me off into all avenues academic research connections with cognitive scientists i guess i want to do a quick shout out to the the learning scientists they were probably my first uh exposure to cognitive science and, and Gosh, nearly 10 years now, 2014 or 15, something like that. Uh, and they were just brilliant. And they're still going and they're still sharing great stuff. So f- for me, they were a really good way of my busy nature of school life, accessing that type of stuff uh, alongside practical teaching ideas. And just you now, seven, eight years later, just I wouldn't say I was a pro, but I'm a lot more thoughtful and knowledgeable about these things. And I guess with lockdown and has been a lot at home, dog walks and all that type of stuff, audio books, I just spent every waking hour I had spare reading about the brain, memory, synapses, all those. And you've read the books, so you'll know what I've done. But um, yeah, there's a, there's a kind of roundabout answer to, to your question. So it's been growing over time. I guess uh, in summary of what I now know, it's it's always been subconscious. I've just made it conscious by, pub- yeah, by, just made it by publishing the book. Definitely, and deepening your thinking. Yes. I love that nod to the learning scientists because we have one of them, Carolina Cooper Tetzel, here in Scotland. Yeah, I love Carolina. Yeah. She's probably a, a very underused resource for us. Yeah, she's fantastic. I managed to visit her in Dundee. I think she's in Glasgow now, but she's great. Yeah, she is. Okay, thank you. So I loved all that. And I, I must say that during the, the lockdown phase when you kind of transitioned all your work online, I, I I joined in a lot of your stuff about the early stages about learning about memory and advanced memory and so on. And it really helped me a lot and it helped me understand. And that's when I was really starting to put things together. Yeah. The introduction of, of the book, I suppose was more about uh, my journey, uh, putting it all into one place uh, as a beginner's guide and, and that it, 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 it might be new to some teachers, but in terms of history and all the research that's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, it's nothing new. And, and rather than writing a book, I guess, as a next step on how to remember, writing a book on why we forget might be uh, a next step. But the question I ask myself throughout the entire book is, I can learn parts of the brain and what a synapsis is, but how would it make me a better teacher? And that's what I've tried to do is I've gone through all the history and the all the different bits of research, what can I do as a teacher? And what I've tried to do throughout the book is, here's an explanation, here's a question, here's some worked examples. I've practiced first, now you have a go. And I guess that's inspired also by Rosenshine. You know, very few teachers can remember the 17 principles. So I worked hard to strip it back to four, explain question practice feedback, and that's a nice little memorable loop that all teachers can use. Um. Yeah, and uh, lot lots of advice like that. 
No, definitely. I love that loop of explaining question practice feedback. I've definitely taken that on board. Um, I think it must have been from a webinar with yourself around Rosenship. Possibly. Was when you first mentioned that. <laughs> um, you know, and it's just stuck with me. Yeah. It? Like you mentioned there. It's just a memorable routine, me. yeah. It certainly is. So you write in the book that it is my belief, besides mastering the classroom in terms of subject knowledge and behaviour management, memory is the number one thing all teachers need to know about. What can I ask, Ross? Why is it that you think that memory is the number one thing we need to know about? Well, you know, I spent my whole career mastering design and technology, and then you know, even as a graphic specialist, suddenly teaching textiles and food tech, and then teaching A level students how to make a corset. I was well way out of my depth. I guess that's what you know scientists have when they have to do the, the biology, chemistry. Uh, physics carousel in schools where you become a, a jack of all trades or a jill of all trades and you um you feel a bit out your depth so you have to master your subject knowledge alongside the mechanics of the classroom the behavior the layout how to pose a question all those types of stuff and i guess through your experiences you learn what works what doesn't i i, I do think my four-year b-eds uh was quite comprehensive. You know, we looked into education history, design theory, uh, making stuff exhibitions, uh, the school experience too for a 12-week placement, you know, child development, etc. But we didn't look at the brain. And the kind of question is, what, why do I need to know about the brain? But then I'm picking it into different parts, how certain parts of the brain are linked to cognition, judgment, balance, etc., how can I hinder or support my brain by drinking water, getting good sleep, or doing the total reverse? What happens when we have an accident or we develop Parkinson's disease? How does the brain regenerate itself? And why do kids not understand us uh, and behave inappropriately throughout their teenage years? Well, inspired by Sarah Jane Blakemore, who's one of the world's leading experts on the teenage brain, you, you start to understand actually right up to the age of 25 or so, we're still, our brain's still developing and pruning itself in terms of making connections that will define who we are for the rest of our life. So even as a new teacher, back in my, God, 19 years old when I started, um, you know, I was, still a, I was still a very young man making lots of mistakes and sometimes that rippled into the classroom. So you can see how that knowing a bit more about what happens in here and how it's either supported or not, and what I can do about that as a teacher, or be a bit more aware. You know, when, when we talk about the complex needs of people's learning and uh, special education needs, you start to realise it's a minefield. But there are some, I wouldn't say quick wins, I guess marginal gains would be a better expression that teachers can use. Uh, and I guess, you know, summing up the entire book, the ability to pause, to go slow is a challenge for teachers when they've got 30 kids in front of them working nonstop throughout the day. So I don't know if I've answered the question. I digress quite a lot, but um, you know, master your subject knowledge, master your classroom, and then start to explore cognitive science and be a bit more adept at knowing how learning happens and what you can do as a teacher to shape it. Dave, I think having that knowledge really can supercharge what you do in your classroom once you've kind of mastered the basics of classroom management and, you know, not control, I don't know, it's such a poor word of maintaining students' attention throughout a lesson and then through your, your teaching, your curriculum plans, being able to ensure that long-term memories develop. So thanks for shaping that and also the highlighting, the kind of, <laughs> the, such the, the complexity of teaching because you mentioned everything from early years to special education units to proves already like it's such a fascinating thing to explore and you mentioned earlier about maybe exploring why we forget it's something that's it's such a fascinating topic on why we do forget so can I, you move on then to say that in order to develop an understanding of memory it's important to have a basic knowledge of certain parts of the brain can you give us a brief intro into main parts of the brain yeah i mean uh, i still I still double check on myself. Why do I need to know that? I suppose, as a as an educator, you know, you know, I I, I will still occasionally, you know, the joke, the running joke is Ross, you've forgotten, even though I've written a book on memory. <laughs> but I'm demonstrating <laughs> working memory here that it takes years to make things automated and to learn 
uh, you know, I can go in a classroom tomorrow and, and get back into the rigor and motions of teaching and learning. But when I'm in a, a lab looking at a brain, I'm, I'm a novice. So that cognitive apprenticeship again. But the question I kept asking myself is, if I know what the dorsal is or the caudal or the um, telencephalon, you see I struggled there to remember the word, I don't necessarily think they will make me a more effective teacher, but at least the knowledge of some of that information might help me then think about, right, I'm exploring this part. It's a useful bit of information. Here's the the regions of the brain more particularly, and here's what they do. So, you know, when we think about, um, I know you've got the book to hand, so there's a great graphic on page eight. Uh, I'll just hold it up for people watching this video, that um, you've got, you know, the frontal lobe, which is where we get this little person on our shoulders saying, should you do it or should you not do it? And that's where we start to have our judgments. And that's the empathy part, which in some respects, it's, it's again, that, that kind of prunal growth. It's taught, it's learned, and in some people it's not. So when we think about angrier people in the world for whatever reason through socioeconomic uh, status or through circumstances, you can see how we can learn to disagree with each other or not see the other person's perspective. And I think knowing a bit more about those things helps me understand children a bit better. And, and when I you know, really connected with Sarah Jane Blakemore the last couple of years and read some of her research on what happens in the teenage brain, my God, I think that would, you know, and she writes a lot about how we need to reconsider education policy and how we teach and how we use all this technology in the classroom that hasn't been uh, rigorously checked by any research to prove that if you use that bit of software, at least the X outcomes, they're all kind of business monetizing claims, but actually they don't actually improve learning. Um, And this online world now where we've got a lot more kids and teachers working through online bits of software we don't know, you know, obviously we can see the retrieval practice quiz and that type of stuff, but there's lots of other, what's the phrase, kind of dodgy stuff out there, I suppose. <laughs> um, so there's all that. And I guess ultimately when we look at the history, it's, you know, it's just an interesting, it just kind of puts what I do in the classroom alongside some kind of rigorous research and we've all got a brain. So let's just look at it a little bit more detail. Let's do that beginner's guide as a teacher and let's just see if I can connect the, the history, the brain, the parts, what happens in the parts, and then how does this shape my thoughts as a teacher and how I do stuff in the classroom. I think that's the whole process in the book that I've tried to do. Whether you think that's that I've done that or not, it'd be interesting to know, but that's what I've tried to master in the book. And it, it's probably it's probably one of the most interesting books I've ever written, actually. Definitely good digging into that kind of areas of the brain, the, the telencephalon, the myencephalon, the, and then the kind of areas of the dorsal cord, cord arc. Like it's so so fascinating and so complex, but it's incredibly fascinating because as teachers, we're kind of we're work, we're trying to get students to learn so much stuff that having this understanding of the brain and things to learn. I've started to dig in to Sarah Jane Blakemore's work. Um, I've got a couple of audiobooks on Audible as I'm walking my dog yeah. just now and it's incredibly interesting because we're work, working with, with teenagers whose brains are still kind of moulding and changing. I mean, yeah, I, and I, 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 guess, I guess my real motivation was I do look back at my degree and think, right, we covered a lot and I, I got past the first year itch, I got past the fifth year itch and I got to 25 years and then I thought, Actually, I'd, and I taught psychology for one one point in my school career where I thought I had to cover a teacher because we couldn't appoint. So I was teaching a subject totally outside my expertise or discipline and comfort zone, you know, fake it till you make it, you know, kids doing A-levels. <laughs> so that was because I was interested in the subject. But I look back on my degree and think, right, that's one part that I wasn't taught. Child development, yes, but as a young man going through my own kind of synapsis growth, I wasn't taught what what happens in the teenage brain or how I can use this information as a teacher. And that's that's why I wrote the book, because it was a gap. And what I've seen on my travels, you know, working with new teachers particularly, is they're getting a lot of this cognitive science stuff now in their training. Not everyone is, but some are. And obviously where you are or what your interests are, 
alongside the challenges of mastering your classroom subject knowledge, behavior, and all the kind of headaches you get in terms of work deadlines, it's hard. But I do see in the future a lot more teachers being taught this because it's essential information and it will change the way you teach. Uh, the challenge as ever is you can have whatever you want in a book and theories and recommendations, but you know, you and I are on a little chat now. You've just started your summer holidays and I'm winding things down, but we don't have 30 kids running behind us, you know, challenging all our theories and ideas in practice. And that's the challenge. So the book, you know, turning that theory into practice was was the, the kind of underlying principle behind all this knowledge uh, and so on. And I think I've seen the kind of early stuff I've listened to Sergio play more. It kind of explains why children, a lot of children do the things they do and why they... Yeah, what I'm learning from that, my takeaway from that is tell kids off privately, not pub, not publicly. And you do that in the classroom. But what I've, what I've, what I've been, um, I guess through lockdown when I was in the local park a bit more with my dog and seeing kids, it's very hard to switch off your teacher brain, isn't it? <laughs> so you tell the odd kid off and, I've, I, I, and you think, you can't do the same teacher things you can in the local park. <laughs> so you have to, you have, and because you don't know the kid or the name, you can't tell them off privately or publicly. So you kind of realize, ah, there are lots of things that you need to really think about uh, when you're dealing with teenagers across society, not just in the classroom, but publicly as well. And how they sometimes jump across, you know, fences and all sorts of things they shouldn't be doing, but they're, they're motivated by their peers and, you know, the, the great work by The Hidden Lives of Learners by Graham Nuttall uh, has just been a really instrumental book in my career too that you can say whatever you want as a teacher, but the peer network and the classroom, how they yeah. translate what the teacher said, who dominates the conversations and those relationships in and out of the classroom are what teachers need to kind of infiltrate to understand uh, those dynamics. Definitely, Pets McCray talks about that and his motivated teaching about running the social norms and the yes. peer group is so, so, yes. so important. So, can I, you mentioned these ideas and thrown around a few words like synapses and so on. So, can I ask you, Ross, how, how is memory shaped in the brain? Oh, um, well, we could go into the theory and draw diagrams. You know, you have uh, a neuron, so give or take one or two, we've got 86 billion in, the, in an adult brain. If we think about numbers for a minute, um, one million, if you count to one million seconds, it'll take you about 11 and a half days. If you count to one billion, it'll take you 31 years. So you can start to see how vast this is. When you think about 86 billion, it's enormous. Now, a connection is when I can suddenly say, you know, I can't speak Dutch. But if you tell me how to say the word Dutch, sorry, how to say teacher in Dutch, and repeat that regularly to a point where it's connected and recalled and the retrieval storage grows. That's a synapsis connection. So that's two neurons connecting uh, and shaping that memory so that it can be recalled. So as I am wearing my headphones, talking to the microphone, using the technology, conscious that the dog's barking, little light on the screen, doing a podcast, there's tons of stuff going on. So, you know, there's proof that men can do more than one thing at once. <laughs> but there are millions of things going on that we can't even comprehend because over the years of our baby, childhood, etc., we are shaping, you know, muscle growth, muscle memory, as well as, you know, um, the things that we can recall in the classroom, for example. So, you know, there's diagrams in the book about just unpicking what a neuron looks like, talking about axons and dendrites, all the little parts of a neuron, what happens anatomically when they connect, and just trying to unpick that. And then, again, bringing it back to the classroom, right, if I want kids to remember where Mount Vesuvius is, how do I help them spell the word, remember some key facts for the geography lesson? So we don't like the word rote learning or regurgitation, but we love the words practice and rehearsal. So they're the same thing. To strengthen our synapses, we have to repeat. When we repeat and get that core foundation knowledge, we can then develop schema and add further concepts. So an example would be if I said tomato ketchup, what do you say back, Darren? Red sauce? Yeah, so you've got an established schema. So at some point you tasted ketchup for the first time, you saw it was red, you'll think tomato chili, hot dog, chips, 
uh, you might we then might want to talk about barbecue or chili ketchup and which and if you prefer Asda's or Heinz. So you've got schema already, and you can see how you can add new knowledge. But if I said corpus linguistics, what would you say? So you've got no schema. So I only got that schema recently through my doctoral studies about looking at large bodies of text, linguistics and language. So I'm looking at Ofsted documents and policy announcements, etc. So before I didn't know what that meant. So now I've got a schema and I can add to that. So my analogy for you know knowledge-rich curriculum and developing kids' knowledge and memory synapses or connections is, you know, think of a spider web. Uh, you know, how, where does the spider start? So it connects an anchor point between two corners. Then it maybe does a bit of triangulation before it starts to do the web. And the web might get broken. Or as a child, when I do Google Alexa, I get told the wrong information. So my, my spider web's formed incorrectly and it takes years to, um, well, not years, but it takes a while to unpick and reconstruct. And there's a nice little analogy for thinking how we develop knowledge. Uh, there's lots of analogies that can be useful, at least for a beginner. They can constrain you in some respects about the complex world. But, you know, the wardrobe metaphor, where do you hang your shirt, your tie? Can you easily recall those things? Uh, so practice, practice, practice. You know, rote learning, regurgitation, that's the same thing. Um uh, and I was going to say something else, but I have forgotten. So, so there is a great example of working memory in action that we all, no matter if you're an expert on memory or not, we're all we're all um, we all suffer from cognitive load. Um, so, the research recommendation: write it or say it. And if you can't remember to say it, write it first. <laughs> but I love that. That's a great recommendation. But thank you for that a wonderful demonstration, and it's interesting because it's so fascinating how you describe the kind of for please forget neurons and actually yes. connecting and forming and kind of the kind of how we don't like the idea of rote learning but we love the idea of retrieval practice and essentially there are almost kind of similar and um things that it's, it's kind of explained why retrieval practice is such an important strategy and is really um yeah well i mean teachers have called it we call it revision cognitive scientists have given us the cognitive terminology it's retrieve retrieve a you know, that French to retrieve and, and your cognitive scientist tips will be to write it or say it. And in the classroom, that's exactly what we should do. If I want you to remember something, spider web, I need you to write it, think, pair, share, now show me. Um, and as a teacher with 30 kids to increase my success, rather than just ask one student, you, you're trying to work out 30 and gauge where to go, take the lesson next. I'd have one more analogy. I've just remembered... Um, lots of memory jokes here. Um, I just remember the other analogy was a, a box set on Netflix. So when you're watching a your favorite show, the first 30 seconds or a minute, you've got a recap of what happened last week or you've got the what's coming up and you might sometimes see the end story. So it's that climax. So that's you know great editing, but it also works on the same principle. Here's a recap of what happened. There's retrieval happening on your Netflix episodes. And if you think about your curriculum as a box set, how do you do those same kind of methods to help retrieval and knowledge? So if you think about your favorite show and your favorite characters, there's certain things, you, you know, Star Wars or whatever it might be, you can re remember certain events, certain characters, and then your schema, uh, that core knowledge, you know, Han Solo, CP3O, whatever else, you can start to picture and uh, make lots of references. So, yeah, it's kind of thinking, right, how do I remember stuff and why do I forget and how can I support that memory retention and how can I reduce forgetting in some respects? Have you ever listened to Teachers Talk Radio? If you're interested in education and want to hear from a wide range of teachers from around the world, then I highly recommend giving it a listen. You can listen live via the TTR website at ttradio.org or listen back on all good podcast platforms. I particularly like the Listen Back page on the website, where you can type any name and it will locate the show you want, featuring the guest or host. Amazing stuff. So you've got a great graphic in your book around the different types of memory, working memory, long-term memory, short-term memory. And they're coming, becoming common words in the, I think I've got this word from you, the vernacular of teaching um, in our profession. 
But can you explain to, to the listener, what is the difference between working memory, short-term memory and long-term memory? Uh, keeping it simple. So short-term is your capacity to store information in, in kind of conscious attention. So what we're talking about now is we're talking about memory. And it, you've either got some knowledge or it's brand new. So we think about cognitive apprenticeship, you're a novice or an expert. I'm not an expert, but I guess compared to someone that doesn't know anything, I might be viewed as one. Again, when I talk to Sarah Jane Blakeball, I'm a novice. Um, so you can kind of see the kind of different scales. But short term is your capacity to store information in your in your immediate attention. Working memory is your ability to manipulate information. Now, I guess in my doctoral studies, looking at teaching and learning, retrieval practice research and things, you know, it depends on what we're studying or what the research is unpicking, but I often see when we talk about working memory, it tends to recommend or, or suggest that we can only store between three to nine. Those numbers I see a lot. So it might, one research might say three to five, another one says four to nine. That we can only manipulate that amount of information at once and that we forget after 30 seconds. And most importantly, as a teacher, I have to then use this information to teach better and as a, we have an important choice, and this is the kind of critical message for me throughout the whole book, is I can either hinder the learning process or support it. And knowing a bit more about memory, obviously I want to do the latter. I want to support the process. So if I said S-Q-W-T-D-L-R-M-B-Q and asked you to re- recite those letters, Darren, So I was writing a note. I was writing what you just said. Can so you there you go. So this is a perfect example of when teaching doesn't support the learning process. I haven't given my pupils a warning that I'm going to quiz, test, or do a mock exam. So I didn't get you attentive, ready to learn. So there's an obvious mistake. Now, teachers do that consciously. But sometimes, you know, many years ago, I remember giving my kids a test or an exam with, and apart from a little warning... I wanted to surprise them and just test. And I was always disappointed the results were rubbish. So I wasn't supporting the learning process. Whereas now, the recommendations, you know, regular retrieval quizzes, develop that knowledge, prepare kids for the conditions of the test. So if they're going to get tested in the morning, formally practice in the morning and maybe practice at other times to help shape connections. But you need to warn kids of a test. So Darren, I'm going to quiz you now and you can't write this down. So I'll make the learning harder. But if I say a string of letters, S-Q-W-T-D-L-R-M-B-Q, what can you remember? S-Q-W-T-D-L-R-M-B-Q. Okay, not bad. Q was the last letter. So to support the process, I need you to write it down. So write it down, S Q W. T-D-L-R-M-B-Q. And then obviously we're in a podcast here, but I'd get you to practice with your friends, put your hand over it, try and, you know, the lightning method, repeat it every other day. So it becomes a point where you remember it. Now, they're a random string of letters, but to me, they mean something. So if you came out of my um, house, Darren, there's the Wi-Fi password for you. So I've had to learn these because my son kept asking for the Wi-Fi code. So I had to take some conscious attention, conscious effort out of my day to revise these letters. So I wrote them down. I put them in different places around the house. So when he asked me, I had it to hand on my phone. And now it's automatic. So when anyone comes around, I just say the letters and they're like, (laughs) how do you know? But I guess, you know, we all have to do these odd, odd things, but that's no different to the alphabet. Or when you ask me what's two plus two, I can tell you the answer because conscious effort, short term, I uh, take time to practice. Um, I guess the other things, you know, with that work in memory, three to nine. So if I said, what's two plus two? What are the colours of the rainbow? Who is the first wife of Henry VIII? Where is Mount Vesuvius? And what's the second planet from the sun? There's five questions. Can you give me the answers, Darren? Uh, two plus two is four. Mount Vesuvius is in Pompeii. Henry VIII's first wife was 
Catherine of Aragon. Aragon? Catherine of Aragon. Um, Colours of the Rainbow. Yeah. Well, it? see, I'm helping you here. So, so one, I've made... One, oh. I've made the learning hard by not preparing you for the test. I've just given you a, a random yeah. set of questions. I'm assuming you know them because you're of a certain age. Um, I've been nodding, giving you help. You know, yeah, you're close. You know, some, some, I'm kind of giving you the answers by giving you those verbal, non-verbal cues. And I'm making learning harder when actually, you know, worksheet, here's the questions, prepare for the test, and then retrieve is a much easier methodology. But that's just five questions. And um, I haven't supported the learning, but you can see when we get to five or maybe nine, it starts to become quite challenging. So I guess, you know, be, you know, go, going back to the working memory on you forget after 30 seconds without looking down on your paper, what are the, what's my Wi-Fi code? Oh, S-B-W-T-D-L-R. Okay, not bad. I think you got the second letter wrong, S-Q-W. I think you said B, but <laughs> I, I think you said B the last time when it was a Q. So, um, we, we, so the synapsis is starting to form now, and it's that repetition. So you can start to see how, as a teacher, what I can do to make it easier is quite an important decision I have to make. And then when we just unpick, you know, random letters or some general facts, you can see how we can retrieve them easily or not. And you, uh, you've read the book, you'll have seen where I've done the World War dates and I think it's Scubat, Badibadu and all those different unusual bits of letters. Just to kind of, in a text scenario where you're on your own reading the book, try to just give you examples of where I can help your memory or I can throw a curveball to you and what I can do as a teacher to support it rather than make it harder. So, the, you've, so you've done a couple of examples there. <laughs> Such a good examples about that idea. I love that idea about how you can either hinder the learning process. Yeah, and as teachers, we you know you're making so many microsecond decisions all the time on your feet with thirty kids. It's quite hard for us to have conscious attention too in that short term moment when our working memory is overloaded. We're exhausted. We've got loads of deadlines going on. All the different emails and everything. You can see how we always suffer from problems with loaders teachers why it's important to have a planner, write things down. And all these things I wish I, had, I knew earlier on in my career because I'd probably be a much more highly efficient like I think I am today compared to where I was 20 years ago. Mm, certainly. It's, all, it's just all part of the, the journey. But imagine knowing that. Wait, I think so many people reference that on, on social media. If I yes, knew now what yes. I knew then, or if I knew then what I know now, I would have been such a better teacher. I think people always reference the the, the learning style stuff and, and all that, and the kind of and the kind of what I would call it, what do they call it? I can't remember what they call it. It's the most brain gym. Most one. Yeah, well, fingers crossed. My, my book doesn't get it turned into brain gym. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely, well, surely, hopefully, but surely not. Um, got a couple more questions for you, Ross. Um, my next one is is I love the chapter on emotion something that I've not really considered. And I think it's such an important area for us to explore as teachers. So can you share with us um, what you say about the connection between emotions and memory? Well, this is a tough one because, you know, you've got half the world that think relationships don't matter and that you can still learn without a relationship, etc. I guess many teachers who enter the profession do so because they want to work with kids and they love their subject. And, you know, anyone listening to this think, right, think of your most vulnerable child that you teach. And if they turn up to school and they haven't had breakfast and they've got no money in their pocket for lunch, you know, how are you going to engage them in remembering where Mount Vesuvius is and retrieving it for a high-stakes exam when their social background is quite challenging and emotional and that all those physiological aspects of their brain and, and well-being and sleep affect their retention. You know, if you and I had only had an hour of sleep last night, we'd, we'd, our brains would be niggling at us and would be a bit cross and grumpy and X, Y, Z. And you can start to see how this really influences our emotions and our well-being. So, you know, we've all taught thousands of kids where 
our emotions have been hindered during the day as well as theirs. And, you know, 30 kids in the class and there's, you know, a hormone uh, party waiting to kick off, I suppose, for want of a better term. Um, <laughs> it's how do we balance this in our classroom amongst all the social pressures that we face? So, you know, kids are coming to school, you know, in the bus or whatever with a lot of baggage or not, then they enter the classroom and as they go down the corridor, they're getting told off for left, right and centre. And all those things are important to make the school function more efficiently and safely. But then we have to consider, right, good question is, am I a more effective teacher on Monday period one or Friday period five? Has anyone conducted any research on that? Uh, Are you more exhausted Monday period one? I know I am when my brain's waking up after a few late nights over the weekend compared to Friday afternoon when I'm excited that I've got a couple of days off to sleep and uh, I'm off to the pub or whatever. But is my teaching of better quality? And then think about the kids. They're no different. They're, they're, you know, in the primary setting, they're with a teacher all week. In a secondary, they might see you once or twice a week. And then they've got to go and bounce in between 20 or so other subjects and teachers and try and remember all this and manage the social network of their 30 kids and social media and everything else. So it's a complicated this chapter, this one, but learning is emotional. And, you know, when I quizzed you on the Wi-Fi code, I could see in your response that you got emotional about it. And I could say it was brilliant or it was absolutely awful. So there I'm giving you a judgment and a judgment is also an emotional. Now, if I do that publicly in front of your friends, I have to hinder or support that process too. So I can whisper it. I can delay it. So we know that when we do feedback, it's have to be manageable, motivational, meaningful, but it should also be timely. So is it the right time to tell you that your work isn't very good, Darren, or should I wait until Monday after you've had a weekend off? So all these things matter in terms of that uh, in the book, The Reward Loop, where when we do something, whether it's hard or new or easy, or something you've done a thousand times, the reward loop process, a bit like, you know, People on social media, if you get a thousand likes and retweets every time you do something, it's gonna it's gonna make you keep want to do it because you're wanting that dopamine hit every time. So back in the classroom, you know, if I get the answer right in front of my friends and Mr. McGill says, Well done, XYZ, my reward loop kicks in, and then my emotions start to say, Oh, it makes me feel happy. Uh, in the playground, Darren takes the Mickey out of me for being teacher's pet. Oh, right, I'll put my hand down, except so you can start to see how emotions affect all aspects of our life and in the classroom there are certain things we can do or be conscious of there'll be some things that might be out of our control but there'll be a lot of things that we can be conscious of when we are working alongside kids uh, particularly vulnerable kids who i'm struggling for words here but might not have a, a database is the wrong word i suppose but um social equity they don't have the resources around them and they come with mm-hmm. uh, a different kind of bank of experiences uh, and that's where it makes teaching quite interesting but also complex no certainly the varying backgrounds of the students and what they come in with and um that it's such a great point about you know the the, you about the student if he's getting teased at break for answering questions when they come into your class they're not going to answer questions so it's about creating that social norms that's allowed and so interesting you linked to there about the emotions because you know when you gave me the when I, for, for me as well, I, I really wanted to get your, your Wi-Fi <laughs> code right. And I was seeking, you, seeking the knowledge from you. So it's so interesting. So the retrieval there, on, on, there's a lot you. of, you know, influence on feedback also can be competitive. So if I give you a Mars bar for getting the Wi-Fi code right or first, you can see how that retrieval practice mechanism influences the dynamics of the classroom. And, you know, if I win a Mars bar and you were, one millisecond late and the other child didn't get the miles bar. You can see how that then learning is emotional. There's a fight mm. brewing now and I've got to manage that next. So yeah, it's incredibly complex, but you know, there are some basics we can master in terms of beyond our subject knowledge that will definitely change the way you teach. Certainly. Well, so got kind of one and a half, two questions left for you before we, we, we close the, the session. Um, we've, we've spoken in depth about the theory, kind of the thinking around the brain, memory, and so on. Can I ask you to give just one or two key practical strategies that help us overcome the limits of 
our working memory and maximise. Um, our my favourite, um, I guess I didn't know the word before, but thanks to Ollie Cav, I've been really more conscious of using dual coding. You know, the, the words alongside images, particularly on slides. And I think when people download my resources, they'll see it in full action, I suppose, when I'm doing my webinars or teacher training. I get a lot of compliments about how well laid out my resources are. I think it supports people's engagement, but also the retention. Um, and I guess it goes back to my Mark Plan Teach cartoons that I published a few years ago, just making things a bit more easy access for teachers. You know, Sadly, I didn't do this enough for my children in my classes because, you know, when I started to get into teacher training in my own school, it started to become resources for teachers. And now publicly, it's for everyone. So, yeah, using dual coding was a big one for me. And again, that goes back, gosh, five years or so, maybe a bit more. And then Gestalt theory. So another another top tip, you know, if you think about, I'll show you a slide with loads of human figures and you have to count the people. If they're all congested in the crowd, they're harder to manage. But if you chunk the crowd into groups of five or ten, a bit like kind of try, uh, the dots on top of a Lego block, you can count them in chunks much quicker so you can count and process the information. So it's using some key strategies to help people's access to, to decode, to process, and to retrieve. So that encode, store, retrieve model is essential. And I guess as a teacher, uh, there's two critical parts we have to do as a teacher. I have to make sure that the information I give students is easy for them to decode. So the worksheet, the slides, or how I speak. And I have serious decisions to make alongside my workload. How many slides should I share? How fast, how slow should I go? What, you know, should I give them the full worksheet or half a worksheet or loads of text or what have you? And then the storage is, well, how do I make it stick? So I know that. 30 seconds they forget, three to nine pieces of information is too much. Are they a new or a novice to a subject or are they an expert? What time of day, Monday or Friday? So all these factors, learning is emotional. So when I think about all that, I can consider how to make knowledge stick, so the stickability of my five-minute plan. So you can do all sorts of crazy things. You can jump on your table. You can get kids to look through a telescope. You can get them with a board pen writing on the window. That's cool. So we're getting to graffiti and we're getting to learn at the same time. So we do all these interesting things in the classroom to make lessons not a bit too dull. And we mix the scenarios a bit. So we, you know, we might forget where Mount Vesuvius is, but we drew a volcano and we had fun making lots of, so that's fine. But the teacher now needs to ensure that the right knowledge sticks. So that's the retrieve part. So in next lesson, the week after, we pull it out, we write it or say it. So we, when we do think, pair, share, it's a great strategy, but I don't know if you're thinking about the question. So what I need to do is ensure that you are, by making it concrete, write it or say it, then show me on your whiteboard. And I do think all classrooms in the world need to have whiteboards. Uh, yeah, I'm going to stand by that one because obviously context and all the things I've seen, education needs a lot of translation and different ideas to suit different settings but if i'm a teacher with five or 35 kids in front of me to get a better response rate if i don't have the technology where they're doing quizzes online then at least the thumbs up show me or a whiteboard show me i get the data quickly and i increase rather than just darren telling me the whole class has and i can see ross in the corner hasn't put his whiteboard up yet because he's having a bad day and that learning's emotional so i'll go and whisper to him as students move on with the next activity. So that encode, store, is two essential teacher decisions, but the retrieve is the, yes, it's a decision I make as a teacher, but it's the, that's where the students' work kicks in. That's their responses. And, and that's that really efficient model. Great, thank you. I love that. Encode, store, encode, retrieve. Store, and, and, and you can use that, Darren, you can use that as a lesson plan method or as a curriculum sequence. So what I did in one of my resources online is that I dug out a scheme of work that I wrote in the year 2000. And it was a four-pager, you know, you know, a, a scheme of work I was really proud of. It was about, uh, in DT, you know, making bridges, towers, strength, weight, and breaking them. And kids generally love, uh, you know, learning about struts and ties and then 
breaking it in front of their mates and all that type of stuff. So that's fine. But revisiting the schema work with an encode, store, retrieve philosophy, I went through the scheme thinking, right, what key things do I need to encode with the kids? What, how can I make certain parts of the lesson or the practical sides stick? And then where in the future can I retrieve the other bits of information to help knowledge formation over time? And it's a, just a very powerful thing to do that's quite, once you've got that little eureka moment in code store retrieve, you can go back to any scheme of work you wrote in the past and just reshape it or highlight the parts of where it happens. And then you can, you can re-engineer your scheme of work alongside cognitive science to become a bit more of a powerful curriculum document and in, intention. So then the, the words we're using here in England is that implementation. How do I bring what's on paper to life? And, and that's the critical part. And I think that's where the book on memory might help. Certainly, thank you for that summarisation. So much, so much gold in there for the listeners to go and ponder and and, and think about. And and I really, I think I've got that resource of the course for just even how you've mapped out the curriculum. So, and it is, it is really wonderful to see how you've done that. So, thank you so much, and I'd recommend listeners to get involved in that. I'm going to come back to that in, in a moment. Um, so, my last question of the, of this section before we move on to the quick first section to you, Ross, is, is, is where are you going to go next with your journey into exploring memory? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I think inspired by John Hattie, who who read my book, he, he put me back in my place and said, Ross, there's thousands of books on memory, but not so many on why we forget. And again, although that might be an interesting book to write, my question will be, how will it make me a better teacher? So I guess it comes back to this kind of cognitive load stuff and cognitive load theory and working memory is why can't we remember everything, even though we knew we had a 21st birthday party, but we can't remember everybody that was there. Or we know that we all studied the kings and queens of the of Britain, but we can't remember all their names or the dates. So, you know, why have we forgotten it all? And if we have got 86 billion neurons, there's a lot of stuff going on there that's incomprehensible. So why can't we remember? So it's subconscious somewhere. And because it's not been conscious in attention to strengthen the synapses, that's why I think we forget it or we can't retrieve it. And I think that's what what I might do next. But again, you know, I, I'm a novice here, you know, compared to Sarah Jane and anyone else out there who, who do this as a discipline. It's a beginner's guide for me. I don't know what I would do next, but I think what I'm just going to do is first read the book again, and I'm going to just try and shape some slides into a CPD session for schools, you know, physically on the road. Not all schools are ready for this stuff. Um, you know, it depends on school journey. So I don't expect it to be a very popular uh, kind of, if I think of the stuff that I do in schools, you know, Mark Plan Teach and coaching and stuff are the more popular types of stuff. So it's quite a high level book. Not all schools are ready for it, given the context and pressures and priorities they have. But at least for people that are ready, the individual in their own school, there's something there that meaty and substantial they can get into. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I, I guess that's where I am next. What, you know, I need to read the book and create some resources, and I think that might inspire me to do as to do what next. Um, yeah, right. Thank. You. I love that idea of exploring why we forget because it's such a fascinating explore. I think I mentioned that. Zen. I think I don't know if you've put that. Have you mentioned that somewhere else? But I love that idea, and it's something that is really, really interesting because I'm I'm very much a novice as well. But I've learned so much from you. I've learned so much from. Other books by by Kate Jones, Trisha Taylor, and Pets McRae, those kind of books that have really helped develop my understanding as we go. And um, so coming up to the close of the podcast, um, I put on Twitter that I've got an extra book and I'd like love to give that away. So the first time becoming educators ever given anything away. So what I've done, Ross, is I asked people to yes. retweet that, and I've got the retweets, all the okay, retweets nice. here. So what I think I'm going to do, I'm just going to flick 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 up and down, and whenever you say stop, I'll stop. All right, something. okay. And then they so went, let, let me keep you hanging for a bit here. <laughs> All right, stop. And here we go. Okay, so Deepak Narula, Mrs. D. N. Well done. 
did Mrs. D Narula has won the book. I will miss right, fantastic and get the book sent to her. So thank you so much for taking part in that, Ross. I love that. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll write a wee message on you. Great, thank you. Book for you. So if you want to yeah, no, I hope, I hope, she, message, I hope they enjoy it. So uh, yeah, great little idea. <laughs> right, thank you. So before we go into the quick fire round, Ross, uh, just very quickly, where can people buy the book? And where can they connect with you? So Teacher Toolkit or, you know, Ross McGill, just put it on Google. You can't miss me. Um, you can get your book from Amazon if you want to and destroy the planet with the rover recycling uh, and bypassing lots of tax costs. If you want to do that, it's convenient and you can do it on your phone with one click. Or you can go to the publishers Bloomsbury and get it from them directly. And they are doing their best to try and compete with all the Amazon prices. So it's your own moral compass choice, I suppose. Um, on my website, you can get a free recording of the introduction. So I've recorded it on my own, not on Audible. Uh, I just did it as a little teaser. I might sneakily, don't tell my publishers, but I might record the whole book actually and put it on my website. But we'll see. <laughs> and uh, Or you can get the book from me on my website where I'll sign it and I'll put it in a nice shiny envelope that's consciously considered with the environment and now I live in Yorkshire. I've got a very steep hill outside. So occasionally once a week I go and sh- uh, carry up 50 or 100 books or so, and it's quite a slog. Uh, and I'll, I'll post it to you <laughs> anywhere in the world first class. So, uh, yeah, it's the listener's choice. I love that. I highly recommend to go on and, and, and get it. Well, it keeps me fit. So if you buy my one, I'll take it up the hill and get exactly. me out of the house. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Can just imagine you with a big sack. So all we've got left for us is my quick fire questions. Three questions I ask. Right, let's go. Guest. Are you are you ready for them? Brilliant. So Ross, what are you reading currently? I am reading. I'm actually reading Memory in the Classroom, so that's a book that inspired mine. Uh a book I've got a big pile here I'm writing a blog about our schools, Tim House, Mick Walkers. It's enormous. It's enormous. Um Ooh. I'm flicking through two books on diversity. Diverse Educators, Representation Matters. I've got Carl Hendrick, Paul Kirshen's book, and Jim Neal, How Teaching Happens. So that's the sequel. Hattie's, oh, I'm going to be busy this summer, The Lean Education Manifesto. <laughs> um, Rebecca Allen's books, the big thing. I love Rebecca Allen. And then I've just, uh, I know Mary and John Myatt, Mary and John Myatt, Mary Myatt and John Tomsett for a number of years. <laughs> and I saw them last week and I had this book on my table. And I forgot to take it and get it signed. But, um, yeah, lots of insights there. So that's my summer pile. And there'll probably be one book I'll read. The others I'll probably flick and dip in and out of over the next two or three months. Um, and that's my That tends to be my reading habit because, you know, the, there's a great abundance of education books. Uh, but it's very hard to keep up with them all. So choose books that interest you and develop you. Oh, there certainly are. I'm surrounded by books here. But thank you so much for sharing that list. Some wonderful books in there. Second question, Shiros, is, is what is your current professional development focus? Oh, my. Mine's really interesting because I, I blend between my online life as a teacher blogger and all the ed tech stuff. So if people could see the stuff I have to do, it's far from the world of teaching. It's more kind of business ideas and strategies and efficiencies I'm using a bit of software called Streak, which I find fascinating. That allows me to email thousands of people at once and personalize the email and actually save loads of time. And I get loads of responses. And it's just been really, it's been from an email insight. It's fabulous. Um, I'm a struggling academic, so I'm doing my doctorate. I'm, I'm finding it really hard. I, 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 half of me thinks I won't be able to do it, half of me thinks I should quit. Half of me, uh, you know, I don't know how, how many hearts I've got left now. Um, and the other part says, no, kick, stay with it. So I'm, I'm really finding that hard, and that's probably my greatest professional development area, thinking as an academic and trying to articulate it and break some blogger ha- writing habits and write as an academic. Um, and I guess the third one is, in my life as a teacher trainer, making a difference to people that I meet in a kind of one-off moment more often than not. You know, teachers that are very busy people wanting ideas that they can trust, but they'll make a difference. So that's always a CPD learning curve for me. So the, I guess there's three a three pronged approach there that's just always on my to do list. 
definitely lots of, lots lots of hats, of hats yeah. but I love that image about being a struggling academic. It must be so different writing a blog to an academic yes. with all the complex technical language they have. So thanks for sharing that. My final question to you, Ross, today is what do you love most about being a teacher and teaching? Uh, well, for me, it was always about the kids uh, and my heart strings still uh, get emotional when you, you come across the vulnerable situations. Um, obviously, that you know, for me, even as a school leader, it started to change a lot from working with kids to working with adults. When you're a school leader, you're working with staff more equally as much as you are with children. When you're a teacher, it's the kids. And I guess, you know, from 2010, I suppose, for about seven years, still in the classroom, I was doing that a lot with staff. And now I do it full time. So, so for me, you know, what I get out of it all is the, the difference I can do to support teachers. In fact, before I came on the podcast, I said to my wife this morning, this week, I feel like I'm making a difference. But for all through the pandemic online and people clicking stuff and the odd little tweet, it's very hard to determine if you are making a difference. Whereas before the pandemic, I could be in the middle of nowhere in a school and in the lunch queue and an experienced teacher turns behind and says, Ross, I just want to say thank you for your five-minute lesson plan. I know it's old and the tooth resource, but you know I was struggling and it saved me from leaving teaching. And those little comments make you think it's worth it and you know the blogging and writing all by yourself but you don't really know the digital impact or footprint you have on other people so i i i guess that's my reward loop i i make a difference but i've always you know the toolkit came from having a range of ideas to help people and that's i guess that's my moral compass my my upbringing was in the business of helping or my mother and fathers were so it's changed from kids to teachers and and it continues so my big challenge, I suppose, is what next for teacher toolkit in the future if I get run over by a bus uh, or what do I want the website legacy to be or how can I take it on further beyond my own little small team I have? Do I, do I want to take it to the next level? I've got mixed minds, but you know, I've, turned, I've turned down four investors that offer significant sums of money, which compared to my teacher salary days, are, the numbers are staggering. But I'm not ready to give it up. I like my autonomy, having had quite a kind of diff- two difficult moments in my own teaching career that have put me in this position. But, you know, health depending and, you know, I've got a good 10 years left of me yet before I start to think about that retirement word. Uh, but, yeah, all, all, all those kind of things. But right now it's helping teachers and, and helping them make uh, their working day a bit easier to have a big impact on the kids that they work with. I certainly thank you for that and and I love all the work you do I must say that you've helped me immensely especially during that lockdown phase I was jumped on many many of your webinars and learned so much from you um, and you're, you're a bit of an inspiration oh. to me um, and <laughs> we'll, we'll be able to test, testify to Cheers, that I, I look at all the things that you do and, and I think I'd love to love to be able to do no, some well, of that I mean you're, you're, do, you're making your own little noises and ripples online so keep up all the good work you're doing it's nice to see you getting inspired by lots of different sources I, I guess my words of wisdom is try to dance on both sides of the fence you know it's quite easy for us to take a side but I will say there are many roads to Mecca and I guess what I've seen on my travels is there's lots of schools doing things differently and, and that's because of the context or the resources they have to hand um so it's important that we all support each other and try to support and challenge from within without berating, you know, against all the accountability pressures we face. But find me any teacher that doesn't want to get better. Find me any school that doesn't want the best for the kids. You, you struggle. You get one or two extreme situations, you know, the safeguard and stuff, the illegal schools or the one or two teachers that have lost their mojo for whatever reason. You know, life gets in the way. Uh, and we all need to pay our bills and we might break a leg here or there. But ultimately, teachers, uh, the moral compass, I believe, and I'm, I am biased, but they're, they're set the right way. And uh, they're, they're good souls. And they, they, without them, our society, you know, I'm going to bring, put it back to basic, basics. Our teachers help kids to read and write. That, you know, my son's just leaving primary school. And I know this is just a stupid thing to say. When he went to school, he couldn't read. He couldn't write. Now he can. And it's in, and of course, the parents you know, at home have supported him. But I just think that's incredible. <laughs> and we, we don't, we don't really it? take time out to think 
that is an incredible thing that our teachers do day in, day out, you know, that memory formation again, to make a small human being be able to do all this complex stuff and then use it for the rest of life. And sadly, not all kids get that diet for whatever reason, but um, our teachers do incredible work and we need to celebrate it more. And one day, you know, I might be old enough and see the day where teachers are celebrated again. You know, we get the odd celebration, but we still get that a lot of berated press headlines, that kind of stuff where we, we don't seem to be valued as a profession. But uh, as we saw in the pandemic, the misses when we're gone. So, um, you know that homeschool type of stuff yeah uh, so all teachers listening thank you for all your amazing work and if you use my resource or darren's then uh let us know how we can make things better and easy for you and see what i can do to help right what a way to close the podcast thank you so much for your time this morning ross and thanks so my pleasure thanks everyone thank you so much for listening to becoming educated Before you go, can I ask for a few things that will only take a minute? I'd love it if you could review the podcast wherever you are listening from to get each episode into more ears. If you want to support the podcast, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash DN Leslie. And finally, to keep the conversation going, please use the hashtag becomingeducated. Tag me on Twitter at DN Leslie. I'll be back soon with more insights and knowledge from the greatest profession on earth.